All right, guys, let's talk about Jägermeister. They could have written a totally normal ad here, like a really classic ad. They could have talked about their history, the 56 botanicals. It could have been all salesy and cutesy, but they know you don't care. Jägermeister doesn't want to be like all those other ads you've seen and heard. They just wanted to say two things. Jägermeister is great, but everyone has been drinking it wrong. Damn, that's cold. Drinking it wrong? All right, if that's the case, how should we be drinking it? They are so glad you asked, and so am I, Dad. I'm here to help you. Ice cold is the answer, at zero degrees Fahrenheit to be exact. Ice cold shots of Jägermeister. That's it. That's all they want to tell you. So wherever you are, if you're hanging out with friends or at the bar, call the shots. Cheers with ice cold shots of Jägermeister. Damn, that's cold. And remember to check out Jägermeister at www.draftkingsxjägermeister.com. Remember, drink responsibly. Jägermeister liqueur, 35% alcohol by volume, imported by Mast Jägermeister US, White Plains, New York. Lots of things go better together. Hockey, food, golf, peanut butter and jelly, Gojo and Golik, Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. What? But if you really want to take things to the next level, drink some Labatt Blue Lights with your friends and live life to the power of we. Always enjoy responsibly. Beer, Labatt USA, Buffalo, New York. You're listening to DraftKings Network. What's up, everybody? Mike Golick Jr. here from Gojo. Uh, just wanted to give the heads up. DraftKings as a company is off today, uh, Monday, observing the now national holiday of Juneteenth. And so we are not doing this show live today. We taped this and recorded this before the weekend because we still wanted something for you to have on Monday to listen to. So obviously there will be no discussion of a U.S. Open winner at this point. We will still be waiting for, I'm sure, more clarification in the terms of John Morant suspension and anything else that might happen over the weekend. But this is the best of what we had around. We hope you enjoy it. Here it is. It's a beautiful What's up, everybody? Welcome to Gojo with Mike Golick Jr. That is me. Uh, with me, as always, Super Producer Brandon Newman, my dad, Mike Golick Sr. Uh, dad, how we doing? Wonderfully, my son. Just, just wonderfully. Getting closer and closer to having most of the family here for our golf outing on uh, uh, June 25th and 26th. So that's always fun to get the family together and do it over beer, cigars, and golf. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, no, it's a good time benefiting local charities in South Bend, get a bunch of our friends back there. So life is pretty good uh, on that. We'll have plenty of fallout from that uh, this time next week as yes. we are struggling towards the finish line, I'd imagine, on Tuesday, bleary-eyed and reeking like booze and cigars. Uh, but hopefully having done a fair amount of good in the process, we'll see how that all goes. Uh, we got a great show for you guys today. As always, make sure you download, subscribe, rate, review. Leave us that five-star rating. Check us out on YouTube and, of course, DraftKingsNetwork.com and Samsung TV+. Plus. Uh, and, Dad, we got to this at the end of the podcast last week, the news that was handed down on Friday that John Morant, the Grizzly star player, was going to be suspended for 25 games in the upcoming season, first reported by Shams over at The Athletic. And now is some time to try and sit and digest this. It, it I think, ultimately lands on the right number if you're the NBA and what message you are looking to send, right? You had... Some circumstances around it that Adam Silver had hinted at, new information that came to light that people wondered, was it, you know, the idea that this was a toy gun in the video that was, you know, a rumor swirling around. I forget if it was reported or not. 
all of this that led to 25 is the number that had to send the message if you're the NBA, hey, you made us look bad in public this last time around. Conduct detrimental to the league is a broad brush that the commissioners get to paint with in a number of sports. And in this case, it was, hey, we're a country that's dealing with a lot of gun violence right now. This is also not a safe way for a star player to be behaving for himself, given what the actions were. And so we had to send a message that, hey, this isn't okay, and you can't promise us one thing and then very publicly do another very similar thing to your last infraction in really short order here. And so that number accomplishes that. While Dad also, I think, not going overboard in a case where John Morant technically in this instance hadn't done anything that was illegal by anything that we had found yet, hadn't broken a law based on anything we had found yet and toes that line pretty well. Yeah. So I think a lot of people were, were thinking a half a year to a full year that they were really going to come down hard. But when you look at it, you know, I, I even thought that, and that's what I had talked about Friday uh, on the show is they did the first offense was eight games so they've actually tripled it, right, to 25 games, if my math is correct. Yep. Um, and, and remember, it was not just the gun uh, in the video situation. It was it was other things they had found as well. So there's a few things to look at here. There are times when, depending on the relationship, that a commissioner will kind of float this to the union to say, hey, this is what we're thinking about because, you know, normally you're going to get a union that's going to appeal things. If it were half a year or more, you know, would they? What what's a number where you would get an appeal? So there, there's all that to deal with. But the one thing I will say is is the one thing the league will always offer, and certainly the union will always offer is okay. So here's your issues. We want to help you. You know, just like last time when they were suspended eight games. Go go do this. Go do that. There will be parameters along with the 25 games. There will be other parameters of meetings, whatever, learning about gun violence. I don't know what it's going to be, but it's never just sit those sit those 25 games. It's you have to do more. Talk to this person. Talk to that person. Uh, obviously, change your ways, and then you'll be let back in. And, I, and I'll say this, Mike. I'll continue to say this. The league will offer stuff. The union will offer offer stuff, but it does no good if the player doesn't buy in. You know, you can offer all the help you want to, to use your, your term that you use Friday. You can you can lead a horse to water. You can lead John Moran to, to this is going to help you, but you can't make him admit it. You can't make him say, yes, what I'm doing is wrong because it's not illegal by law. But there are many things in sports where guys get suspended for that aren't illegal but the, because the, the league has their rules and it's through the CBA and professional sports that they abide by these rules. You may not like them, but they're the rules of your sport. You can sit there and complain about them and bitch about them, but until they get changed, you have to follow them. And he not only broke a rule the first time, but then repeated it after saying he, you know, had learned basically, air quotes, learned his lesson. So we'll see what 25 games does and what else he has to do. But as I said, until he says, yes, not only is this wrong, but I have to change my ways, you know, for whatever that means, you know, hanging out with the front, whatever, whatever that means, it has to eventually come from Ja himself. So the NBA's statement with this uh, outlined the 25 games and conditions for reinstatement. 
and said, John Morant posed with a firearm in a car during a live stream video on May 13th, less than two months after being suspended eight games without pay for live streaming a solo video on March 4th where he displayed a firearm. It went on to say Morant wielded the firearm while knowing that he was being recorded and that the recording was being live streamed on Instagram Live despite having made comments to the NBA and public statements that he would not repeat the conduct for which he was previously disciplined. Morant issued a statement on May 16th full accountability so saying there hey you promised us one thing and did another this is about what we see in sports all the time making the same mistake twice Morant's suspension begins immediately and will be remain in effect through the first 25 games he will also be and this is to your point he will also be required to meet certain conditions before he returns to play and will be ineligible to participate in any public league or team activities including preseason games during the course of his suspension the commissioner was quoted as saying John Morant's decision to once again wield a firearm on social media is alarming and disconcerting given his similar conduct in March for which he has already suspended eight games. The potential for other young people to emulate Jaw's conduct is particularly concerning. Under these circumstances, we believe the suspension of 25 games was appropriate. For Jaw's basketball needs to take a backseat at this time, prior to his return to play, he'll require to formulate and fulfill a program that the league directly addresses the circumstances that led him to repeat this behavior. So Daddy basically said, like, you're an example to other people. And this kind of speaks to what we've batted around here is in the current climate that we've seen in the U.S., we see a lot of people dying as victims of gun violence. And for Adam Silver, we can talk about Second Amendment rights and all those things. That doesn't apply to a private organization that says, hey, we're a public entertainment product. We are what people perceive us to be. We got fans looking at this and we can't have this being the influence that we want to have right now, especially after you told us you believe this is wrong and you're not going to do it anymore. Yeah. I mean, we've heard the same thing from Roger Goodell about players is, is uh, the legal side of this does not, does not make us change what we're going to do. We're, we're allowed in this case we see as well to suspend uh, because we have our own CBA with the union and we have the set of rules that, that have to be followed. So again, it, it's going to be on him. This is a guy who in not making the all NBA team cost himself about 39 mil on the Supermax deal. Remember he's got deals with Nike and Powerade. Powerade already pulled a commercial that he was in. So we'll see if there's any more effect on his money outside, but he, listen, he's still making, you know, tons of money that that's not going to be in, have, have an effect there. It's just going to be on him. I mean, this is now strike two in this situation. Uh, so I'll just continue to say it. I mean, how many times can you be sat down and say, you can't do this? You can't do this. And then for him to say, okay, I won't do this after the first time, acting like he understood the parameters and then doing it again. So Listen, I, I don't know the eventual outcome of this. You want him to learn. I mean, it was the same way through steroids and football or things in football that, that the commissioner would say, we don't want young people seeing this and emulating because you guys are at the top of the food chain of that sport while young kids in athletics want to emulate you guys and reach where you guys are going. We can't have them seeing a bad message. And I know some people are, are like, Hey, that, that shouldn't matter. You know, parent, parents need to parent their kids. It's not up to the, the pro athlete to parent your kid. So I know, I know there's a couple of ways there, but leagues from the league sides and from the commissioner sides, they want to say, hey, we feel we have a responsibility to the youth in, in this country 
uh, the way we portray ourselves. And right now, John Morant, you know, strike two on that. And let's hope that he satisfies all the necessary things he does. Because listen, let, we all know well, when he's on the court doing his thing, he is he is a hell of a player to watch. But, you know, he's got to want to do the right things now. But I guess that's the point is like the problem we run into here is if it's just satisfying, checking the boxes, getting back out on the court so he can do the thing again. Like this isn't about, oh, John Morant. Well, it is about John Morant needs to learn to just not wave guns on Instagram live. It's the lowest possible bar to clear. But this all with John Morant is the Lifetime Achievement Award. It's the last year and a half and the patterns of behavior and all these things that are not what we expect a person in his station in life to be doing with as much as he's got in our estimation to lose. And so this is one of those moments where I, I hope it's more productive than just, all right, go to these classes, pay this fine. Like to your point, and this is the jaw thing, you hope the light comes on where it's like, all right, I have to just change the way I'm behaving around all of this or else when I come back to basketball, it's just going to be more of the same. Once I'm back in that old environment, usually teams sell the structure of the environment as this thing that's going to help a player, but clearly nothing about the environment that's been created for Ja or the way he's inhabited it because he's responsible ultimately has led to positive outcomes for them. That's what I mean. He's responsible. Ultimately, you can only do so much. The league can only force him to do so much, right? Oh no, yeah, it's, it's yeah. That's what I'm. That's what I'm saying. They can only force him to do so much. I'm just saying, like, I, he's gonna get to come back and play. I just hope something for him changes in the meantime. There, whether that's conversations with people involved, I, I don't know what it is. But now we've got the parameters for it. This is something that could have been announced during the finals, by the way. But here it is. <laughs> Hey dad, what do you do when you're out with friends, the waiter comes up and tries to take everybody's order, but the whole table freezes up and everyone's looking at each other trying to find some help? Mm, that's a great question. So what, what should I do? You should have some confidence, dad, or as our friends at Jägermeister call it, shotfidence. If everyone's having trouble ordering, here's what you do. You take charge, you grab the bull by the horns, you find that dog in you, and you make an executive decision and just order for the table a round of ice cold Jägermeister shots. Damn, that's cold. Because apparently, we've all been drinking Jägermeister wrong. Did not know that. How should we be drinking it? Glad you asked, Dad. We should be drinking it ice cold at zero degrees Fahrenheit. Well, that brings up other things that I love ice cold as well. And I'll tell you right out of the gate, that's going to be a candy bar pulled out of the freezer. That's my way of eating candy. Oh, I love it. On the golf course out there, you get to the turn in the middle of the round there, and you get to that little clubhouse there, and they've always got the candy bar options, and I always see they've usually got a little box of them in the freezer, and it always makes it better on a hot day out on the golf course, taking a bite of that cold, cold chocolate and getting ready to go for the rest of my round. It's the same way with Jägermeister. So wherever you are, if you're hanging out with friends at the bar, call the shots. Cheers with ice-cold shots of Jägermeister. Damn, that's cold. And remember to check out Jägermeister at www.draftkingsxjägermeister.com. Remember, drink responsibly. Jägermeister liqueur, 35% alcohol by volume. Imported by Mast Jägermeister US, White Plains, New York. Yeah, that's. I, I know we've we've talked a lot about the John Morant story already, and we'll 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 keep it moving here shortly. But Dad, I guess that's the one thing. Sitting over the sitting and thinking about this is 
man, this could have been an email. Like, what was keeping Adam Silver from announcing this suspension at the beginning of the finals, having one day of news where we talked about it, and then ultimately getting back to the sport to the sport of basketball? Like, the tease and the way that that was executed still strikes me as really strange. I, I if I were him, I wouldn't even have brought it up at all, and and, and I still. I still get not announcing it during the finals because it still would have dominated uh, talk shows. I, I just don't think he should have brought up anything. I, I don't think he should, should have said a word about it at all and just came out with it after. Uh, but he kind of gave that gave that radio tease out there, so we we're all kind of waiting and waiting. And now we got it, and, I, and I, I wonder, you know, the the kind of response nationally is it underwhelmed by it, overwhelmed by it? Too much, too little. That that will be the talk going forward. But the bottom line is, you're responsible for your actions, and is John Morant going to be responsible for his actions enough to get back on to the court and help a team in Memphis who, you know, is is only going to be a great team if John Morant's at his best playing. Yeah, I, I do think. I guess to that extent, maybe it accomplished the goal to where I heard that number and I go. All right, well, I've heard that number batted around as one of the numbers for like a week now. This was something I kind of expected. And so it does hit a little bit less than maybe it might have otherwise, but still ended up becoming a distraction during finals week. That was just a very interesting situation. Maybe there was to the point about the was it a toy gun, was it a real gun thing. Maybe that was information that got presented to them late. And so now all of a sudden you have to adjust even if you were planning it out, but uh, either way, that did come to light. Dad, one thing we didn't get to talk about last week that you and I were both, as we talked to Stephen Schock, uh, the former UVA pitcher on Thursday last week, about the College World Series. On the lead into the College World Series, we had that game versus Texas and Stanford where you had, unfortunately, the Texas season come to an end based on the air of outfielders losing the ball in a light. Texas's right fielder, who might have been the best right fielder in school history, a phenomenal baseball player, unfortunately just loses the ball. You see him, two outfielders both lose it in the lights. It drops down, and Stanford moves on to the College World Series. And for a player that has given and done so much to have that be one of your worst moments in sports, Dad, I mean, I feel like hits home with everybody, right? He's obviously going to go on to do plenty of things, but we've talked about it. You're so wired uh, uh, the way we are as athletes to always remember the absolute worst thing that's ever happened for you. Like, I I'd imagine for you, while I consider that more of an O-line trait, there's still something you hearken back to like that that's going to stick in your craw no matter what. And we've talked about it before on this show. I've heard about it my entire life for you. Your worst athletic moment has been bannered about on air and in our home more than any of your accomplishments ever have. Uh, athletes will always remember the worst over the best. You're happy with the best, but you, the worst always is in your mind the, of, of that moment, whether it was a game, whether it was just, just that single, single moment, whatever. Yeah, and for me, it was high school wrestling. Uh, high school, I was a heavyweight wrestler at St. Joe's High School. I was the number one heavyweight in the state and went into the high school tournament and got beat the first round. You know, I'm the number one seeded guy, so the person I wrestled was not obviously the number one seeded guy. His name was Kirk Loudermilk, who ended up, I ended up playing against him uh, in the NFL. He was with Minnesota. He was with the Colts. We went against each other then as well. He played at Ohio State, and he beat me, and I came back and took third, and it's not even close, Mike. It's not even close. I, th there are nights I go to bed when I when I can't fall asleep. I'll still be thinking of that. Still think of that match and how 
disgusted I was in myself that my head coach, John Story, who I, I respect so much, carried my brother Bob was his first state champ in 1975. And I'll never forget watching that and watching John Story pick up my brother and carry him around the mat. And this was 75, so I was 13 years old at the time. I watched that and I said, I want Coach Story to carry me around the mat. And if I'd have won a championship, he would have, even though he was, you know, a little older then. I would have. It would have happened, and I didn't. And I'll, I'll, I'll never forget that. Sticks in my craw forever. How about you? It's, it's the worst because you can see it all and feel it all so clearly still. Most people would assume it would be the national championship for me, but it was actually a game a year earlier. So I was a late bloomer. I didn't start until our starting center got injured my true senior year uh, against Wake Forest. And so I started the last handful of games of that season before 2012. And one of those games we played was on the road in Palo Alto against Stanford. And I was the center on a road environment, which meant we were doing a silent count. And I'm sure as a lot of people have seen, there are different ways to go about that. But back then, the premier version was I would look between my legs, I would get the signal from the quarterback, and then I would pop back up, give the head nod, and that was the count for the rest of our line that we're going to snap the football. Well... Apparently, John Jim Harbaugh had complained to the refs about the manner in which I had done this. And so at the beginning of that game, I was called for three false start penalties because of how abruptly I was snapping my head back up. And it completely sent me into a tailspin, sent us back. I had a terrible game. We ended up losing on the road. And Dad, you and Mom can attest to this. That was one of the darker post games of my entire life. I was inconsolable. I, I The rest of the trip was basically blacked out of my mind for me because I was in such a blind rage thinking I had basically lost that game for us. There, there are times as a parent when you try and talk to your kid through it and it's okay, this or that. <clears throat> this was one of those I didn't say a word. I tried to in the beginning, saw the dark place you were in and said, you know what, just going to let this one go, you know, because, yeah, you were you were not in a good way. I, I will ask at this point, it being, you know, a, you know, a long time later, over a decade later, why after the first or second one didn't you bring your head up slower if that's what you were getting called for, snapping it up too quickly? Because it's so much muscle memory at that point. Like, you got to remember, like, this is what you work on in pre-practice warm-ups all the time. This is supposed to be second nature for you. So even as I'm trying to slow it down, it was still hard to do at that point. Plus, I was a new starter. Everything was moving a 1,000 miles an hour for me. So a better player probably would have adjusted at that point. I was not him then. And so the results continued to be what they were for another drive or two before I finally worked that out and calmed myself down. Uh, that is what happens when you are struggling at the beginning as a fledgling senior trying to muster up the confidence to go out there and lead the troops. Speaking of that, why don't we get to something I have been very excited to talk about here, the delusional confidence of certain athletes making its way into the public sphere as we play a little quote game. The NBA playoffs are heating up, and so is the action on DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. With same-game parlays, live betting, odds boosts, and so much more, don't miss out as the NBA postseason winds down. And now that the Boston Celtics have slayed the boogeyman in the Miami Heat, 
Boston fans, we feel a little bit more confident about the situation. You can decide right now, and if you're new to DraftKings, you can also check this out. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get 150 in bonus bets instantly. So download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code GOJO. That's code GOJO for new customers to get 150 in bonus bets when you bet just 5 bucks. Only on DraftKings. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. That's 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas, 21-plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.co slash bball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. All right, Dad, every once in a while we get enough people talking wild in the world of sports that we get to play whatever version we name this quote game uh, where I read you a couple of quotes from various people and you try and decipher who said it and why the hell they thought that this was a good idea. Um, And boy, oh boy, there is no quote I want to start with more than the one I am about to read you now, Dad. This quote, tell me who said this one. I feel like when my time's up and I retire and put the shoes up, I feel like there are going to be people who are going to say that I changed the game, and I am going to be very appreciative of that. Dad, who is the author of this brilliant masterpiece, this incredible player who thinks so highly of himself that the rest of the game will be changed for the better because of him? Well, you got to believe it's it's could be one of the what we're going to consider one of the all time greats whenever their career is over, and that's a quote from a guy that's obviously playing right now. So, you know who is who is one of those guys? Is it a LeBron? Is it a Kevin Durant? Is it a Steph Curry? You know, of guys who could change the game with the way they're playing. It's got to be some apt, absolute super stud like that, correct? Carl Anthony Towns, come on down. Um, yeah, man. So this quote from last week, Carl Anthony Towns went on Patrick Beverly's podcast to Patrick Beverly. If you haven't been paying attention, he's moved around a bunch lately, ended up on the Timberwolves with Carl Anthony Towns. And so he's sitting there gassing his teammate up and man, Cat had a lot to say on this podcast about the way that he's perceived. He went on to say after this dad that he hopes that kids coming up now feel they can play the game a certain way because of how he's played it, basically trying to insinuate that he is the first big man to move outside and revolutionize the game by shooting and doing things on the perimeter. He even had Pat Bev on that podcast say that if he was choosing just the best five right now, he would take Cat over Jokic and Embiid and all these other guys. I understand wanting to talk nice about the guest that's in front of you and about a guy that's your teammate and you might be friends with, but this is a level of delusion that's almost concerning. Like, we know most great athletes talk themselves into some stuff, but man, the way Carl sees himself and the way the rest of the world does might be as far apart as any player we have right now. I'm I'm still trying to figure out how he thinks he's changed a game because he shoots some threes. As a stretch five, I mean, is that is that his reasoning? Did he go into his reasoning? And I can't believe – now, I guess I can when you're on the podcast with a teammate and a supposed friend that you wouldn't go, Cat, what are you talking about? I mean, I, I, I don't understand it. I, I, I guess I should go back and listen to that if there was more explanation as to why he would think his style is changing the way – 
the game is played. I, I not gonna lie, did not see that one coming. Don't understand how that one is coming, and couldn't disagree more with how that one is coming. It's one of those things I thought about going to listen to it, and this is no disrespect to Pat Bev or the podcast or anything like that, but when the hypothesis or the thesis is as flawed as this one, I'm not really going to listen to reasoning that I don't think can ultimately support an argument that just is that outlandish. Like, Carl Anthony Towns has been a fine player. I think Minnesota's in a really interesting spot right now because they've got Anthony Edwards, who they need to do right by. You had the horrific Rudy Gobert trade where you tried to twin towers this thing in a way that just did not work out. And you've got to figure out what you're going to do because Anthony Edwards does seem like he's the one that actually has the potential to be special in this league. And how are you going to build around him in that? way because man with Carl I remember when he was leaving the court after one game and he's doing like the kissing towards the crowd like he's Jake Gyllenhaal walking off after the uh, late night show he was on or whatever it's all just been really weird and feels like faux confidence from a guy trying to convince himself maybe as much as anything that this is all true because you're right as we look around the modern NBA this is no disrespect but Carl's going to be like the meat of the bell curve of players that once you're done you're done and we don't spend a lot of time thinking about you based on what we've seen through the first eight years of his career so far because while there's a couple all NBAs mixed in there and he's been an all-star player at times unfortunately their team hasn't accomplished much and him as a player there's not been a bunch of individual accolades or things we haven't seen elsewhere or before that make this statement sound completely nonsensical. Uh, listen, I agree. He's had a nice career, right? Double-double, 23 points. Sure. Uh, averaging 11 rebounds a game, 23 points. It's, it's been a nice career, but but you are correct. When his career is over, to me anyway, and I, it sounds like to you, there is nothing that we're going to look back on years from now and say, oh, yeah. You know, Carl Anthony Towns started this. This is why this big guy is doing it because of what Cat did, you know, way back when. I, I just, I don't see it. And I'm with you. I, I'm, and maybe that's bad on, on our part not to go back and listen to his reasoning, but I'm with you. I can't foresee any reasoning where I'm going to change my mind and say, oh, yeah, he's right about that. I just, I don't see it. I just don't see it at all. Again, it's going to be a fine career. But and and which is cool because to make it to that level and all that the things that go along with it is cool. But yeah, nothing earth shattering or game changing in my view. No, I agree. So, uh, but you know, again, wish him well. Hope it keeps going well. But we'll see what his future even looks like with that team as they go forward with Ann Edwards. Uh, all right, Dad. Let's get to this next quote here. Tell me who said this one. It sucks. I watched plenty of Super Bowls, and finally, it was my opportunity, and I was so locked in. I could feel it that day when I woke up. I knew I was probably going to be the best person on the field that day. I just wanted to have that moment. So I know that one because I was actually I actually was calling that game. I was doing sidelines for that game for Westwood 1 when this player got hurt and couldn't fulfill what he thought he was going to be, and that's Odell Beckham. And I love seeing him back now as he signed that deal with the Baltimore Ravens. Uh, but, man, I'll never forget, Mike, after that game, he was in tears on the field. Even though his team had won the Super Bowl, he was in absolute tears that he couldn't finish that game. And, listen, if he was healthy and doing his thing, I don't think there's any doubt he would have certainly been one of the best players on that field. That Maybe certainly on the offensive side overall, I, so I don't know, would probably go to Aaron Donald. 
uh, there. Uh, but yeah. listen, as an offensive weapon, he had uh, he had brought a lot to that team. That was the year the Rams basically gave up all their draft picks to the year 2090 uh, in bringing people in. So this one, I'll say, is closer to the truth than the Carl Anthony Towns quote. I'll put it that way. Yeah, if we're going to grade the quote here, Odell had a lot more of a claim to this right now uh, for the exact reasons you mentioned. He was super important on the field. We know Cooper Cup was the best wide receiver in the NFL that year. That connection between him and Matthew Stafford completely changed that offense in ways that they needed to in evolving Sean McVay and what they had been doing there. But OBJ in that Super Bowl run, because they were going to put so much attention on uh, Cooper Cup on the other side, meant that he was going to have those opportunities, and he was nailing them. I'm with you. Aaron Donald was still the best player on that field overall. Pretty comfortable in saying that, but um, still uh, definitely someone who had more of a claim to that now and is at this point where – I hope we can get that version of Odell in Baltimore because, Dad, as we think about the 2023 season, the Baltimore Ravens offense, outside of the Kansas City Chiefs, who are going to be the stock answer for you know, the best offense in the NFL, limitless capability, they've evolved what they've done, they've changed what they've done, yada, yada. They deserve all of the credit for being number one in any offensive conversation in the NFL. But as far as an offense that's got maybe the highest ceiling besides that right now, it's hard-pressed to look anywhere but Baltimore just because what Lamar offers you at quarterback is so different, and now we feel like he might have some added weapons in the passing game and a coordinator who may be primed to actually evolve this to the next step, too. Yeah, no, listen, I agree. That's one of the things we've talked about with Baltimore is they never really set Lamar up with some receivers. He always had Mark Andrews as tight end, but now you know, Nelson Aguilar and Rashad Bateman and Odell Beckham all together. We'll see with Zay Flowers, a lot of promise, you know, as a rookie coming in, that he actually does have some some receivers to throw to, and that offense is going to go supposedly more to a passing offense and less running. I'll, I'll wait and see on that. Because I remember when they tried to do that with Josh Allen. They were like, Josh, you run too much. We want to make you throw more. And when that started happening, it, well, they weren't as successful. Josh needed to run. Lamar needs to run. Now, does he need to run 13, 15, 17 times a game? Probably not. But you're still – the Baltimore Ravens are not going to get to the promised land without Lamar Jackson using his legs and running and still being a major part of that running offense. Well, no, and I think that's the point. I heard Mina Kimes bring this up on her podcast not too long ago in talking about this offense that with Lamar Jackson, you've got this added benefit where essentially every pass with him is a play-action pass because he's got that potential to break off and run and hurt you with his legs and that if they are operating with more wide receivers on the field, more 11 personnel on the field, now you might create even more lanes instead of bogging down the box with all these bodies because you've got three tight ends on the field at a given clip. Now, if you're Lamar Jackson, the rushing lanes could be even more wide open and we could get back to that dude we saw remixing people during that 29 MVP season, moving out in space and creating problems for second level defenders. Like at its core, all of modern football, especially when we've seen the RPOs, the things like that, and really football in general is, hey, we want to put defenders in space in conflict. And there are few people in the NFL that can put a defender in conflict every play in a more potent way than Lamar Jackson the way he does business. So I'm with you. That's uh, definitely, to me, something to keep an eye on is how they employ that. Because we also saw that with Josh Allen and the Bills this last year. That offense regressed a little bit too much into, hey, Josh, go do the thing. And I think it had a negative effect overall on the product. 
So I'll, I'll say this. I'm looking at Lamar Jackson. When he came into the league, he carried the ball 147 times, 176 times, 159. And then two years, the last two years, he only played 12 games each year, 133, and then last year, 112. If he plays all the games, in all honesty, Mike, I don't see the carries dropping from when he was carrying it 147, 159, 176. I still think it's going to be in that area. You know, for everybody saying he's going to run less, I still think for them to win. Now, whether it's a planned run or not is a different thing. We have planned runs and we have him just taking off and being dangerous. But I still think his number of carries, if he if he plays 15 to 17 games, that it is still going to be over 150 carries. Yeah, and to me, that's never really the issue is – Lamar Jackson being involved in the run game. You'd be foolish not to use the gifts the same way you were foolish not to with Josh, the same way you'd be foolish not to with Cam. It's about having the optionality outside of that. We felt like eventually there was a lid on this offense because there wasn't enough, either through weapons or through the way the offense was structured, stuff to push downfield that makes his life easier in all of those other ways. It felt like he was doing too much of the lift inside of those carries. And I think how they come about and what else comes along with them is going to end up being the secret sauce that makes or breaks a Ravens offense that we all hope can live up to all of the parts involved and the ingredients they've brought in this offseason. Dad, let's get to one more quote here. Let me said this one. I mean, it was great. It's great to see what is this year's almost an average Major League Baseball crowd in the facility for one night. That's a great thing. Well, if you're mentioning average crowd, you're probably talking about baseball. So so I'm probably going to lead toward Rob Manfred in this thing. Yes, uh, that was the commissioner, Rob Manfred, in what felt like dead to me kind of an ugly shot at the Oakland A's fan base here. As we're in the middle of what's a weird war for the A's future, you've got the Las Vegas, uh, you've got the folks in Vegas trying to pass bills to help fund the stadium that they want to build there and move the team there. You had last week the Oakland A's fan base host instead of a walkout protest, they actually flooded the box. They brought fans to the stadium. They were cheering for ownership to sell the team. And this is what prompted the conference uh, comments from Rob Manford, who, Dad, I understand in his role as commissioner, like every other commissioner, you work for the owners of these teams. You work for the people that are trying to make money for the rest of the league. And so him going out here and in a way trying to not necessarily, maybe not even carry water for, but you're going to go out and express the interest of what ownership wants in this case. And it's either to actually move the team or to create enough of the perception that this move is going to happen to try and drive even more from what you'd get out of the market in Oakland. But this felt a little ugly towards the fans and I think a way that should be beneath the commissioner here this was someone trying to clearly stick a jab in in a place where you're supposed to as the steward of the game probably be a little bit more independent of an arbiter when you talk about this thing and just it, it kind of rubbed me the wrong way and I'm sure rubbed a lot of fans in Oakland the wrong way yeah I don't think there's any doubt about that their average the top uh attendance average this year is the Dodgers at 47,000, or just under 48,000. Last is Oakland. The average is 9,000. So in all honesty, an average crowd for what, what potentially would fill the place average is actually pretty good. So maybe he didn't mean it as a jab, but it came across as kind of a jab. Could that be possible? Oh, I think, I think he meant 
I think he meant it as a jab. Like, listen, looking at the Oakland attendance statistics at this point is more about the team that you could argue they've intentionally made bad to also be a part of this conversation to help them get moved out. Like, they have been actively thwarting good baseball, it seems, around there for a while. So, no, I, I don't think that that was a well-intentioned remark from the commissioner. I, you know, Again, we've been around Rob. He's been on the shows when we were the morning show in the past. Like, I don't have any disdain for the guy, but this was clearly a comment that to me was out of pocket. Yeah, I mean, listen, who always loses in these situations? It's the fans, right? The fans want a team, but you always sit there and say, well, if you want a team, show up more. Well, I know we're at the point, we're past the point now. It's kind of like where we were in Connecticut, right? When the Hartford Whalers were there and then they left. And now what, what do they still sell? Hartford Whalers gear. And there was just a report that, uh, they in Connecticut, they started saying if a team's going to move, we want to move back to Hartford. There's no way on God's green earth there's going to be a professional sport, you know, it's it, especially hockey, that's going to move back to Hartford. It's just not going to happen. Uh, so the fans always lose, but there sometimes there's a reason you lose. If the attendance isn't there, if the want isn't there, you have to get out. Now, it can be more than that at times. It can be the stadium. It could be the lease. Other reasons on why you, you want to leave. But this is now past the point, right? The, the fans tried to get there and have that kind of sit in and make a guy sell and not move the team, but that's not going to happen. It's just a shame because the fans always lose. And if, if Manfred was taking a bit of a shot, that's a shame as well, quite honestly. Yeah, I mean, and he came out and said, I feel sorry for the fans in Oakland. I don't like this outcome, and I understand why they feel like they do. The real question is, what was Oakland prepared to do? And that got a bunch of pushback from people locally because they said that the commissioner and the MLB were basically positioning this in a way that folks in Oakland and the offices there, the Oakland mayor's office, positioned as just an out-and-out false representation of what they offered up to Major League Baseball. And it, it goes back to, and Dad, you brought this up, but uh, Holly Anderson uh, over at the Shutdown Fullcast always says, they wanted to, so they did, is what most decisions in sports come down to with these men in high-powered positions. They wanted something done, and so they did it. And there was going to be very little, I think, in reality that folks in Oakland were able to do to keep this than any fan was able to do when everyone involved likely sees what we've talked about, the rest of the sports world seeing. There is money in Las Vegas to be had right now for these sports franchises. We have seen it reflected in the teams right there. The Aces successful in the W. You've got the Vegas Golden Knights hanging a banner this past year. You've got on and on more and more interest eyeballs and dollars being flooded to this place. And so everyone else's wants, needs, or desires, we're going to take a back seat to this. For all of the fun that happens and all these great moments we talk about on the ice with a homegrown team like the Vegas Knights and what that meant to that community and fighting through for your brothers and sisters and all these different things also falls by the wayside when we get to these moments where it's just powerful people in search of more money and power who are going to tear up whatever they need to do to get to that point. You're 100% right. It's a business decision where you look – in the long range, the long plan that says going to Vegas, good. Now that now that sports pro teams can go there, now that the whole gambling landscape has changed, it is very profitable to go to Las Vegas. And I'm sure in Oakland they knew somebody's going there. Somebody somehow, some way is going to end up in Vegas sooner rather than later. Why not let it be us? We're not making a whole lot of hay here. Let's go there and do it. We know we're going to ruffle some feathers along the way, 
but they're not the first or the last organization that's going to move. But again, they're you know, we can talk about sports. We love the sports. We want to watch the sports. But remember the people that are in the sport are in a business. It is a for-profit business. You'd love to win along the way, but you also want to make money. And Vegas, you can make money now, not just at the gambling tables, but you can make it in the sports scene as well. Yeah, and so we'll wait to see. There's still, and you know, I've heard a lot of people talk about. There's a lot more red tape and things that are going to need to go through before anything actionable actually happens here. But the feelings have already come up to the forefront of this, and they are not great. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants—they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day. You're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. All right, time to land the plane. Let's get to this, that, and third. Three quick stories to send you off into the day. As always, download, subscribe, rate, review. Leave us a five-star rating. Let us know more what you want to hear on this fine program. Uh, Deb, let's get to this. We got the NBA draft coming up this week. Victor Wembignana's French career came to an end last week. We're going to get ready for Big Vic to go number one overall to the San Antonio Spurs. But outside of that, one of the other headlines that's become interesting is sources around the league wondering about the future of Zion Williamson with the New Orleans Pelicans. We know some of the unsavory headlines off the court, but on the court for a player that's been off injured but still really talented, there are people wondering if they might be willing to deal that number one, that pick, their former top pick, heading up into Thursday's draft to try and move into position for one of those other top picks. This according to ESPN's Brian Windhorst. So, Dad, do you think there's any shot that we see Zion actually get moved before Thursday's draft? Yeah, I, I could see. I mean, a lot of people are saying, boy, if you're doing this with Zion, why didn't you do it before you gave him the money? And I think they gave him the money to see if, you know, okay, this is our commitment to you. You know, we need that big commitment out of you now. And we see some of the stuff going on off the court with him. But the biggest thing from a basketball standpoint is his injury and the lack of, it seems, being in shape. And does that change? You know, for everybody, you know, it's different. Just because you're a pro doesn't mean you're a professional on how you go about your business. And that's the thought process here. Does this guy know how to get ready for a season? But make no mistake, when he's on the court, he is incredible. Well, before he got hurt, he was averaging, what, 26, 28 points a game, and he is amazing on the court. But the best ability, that's the oldest saying in the book, is availability. And he hasn't been there. He hasn't been available. He hasn't been doing, it seems, what he needs to be doing to keep his body in shape enough to stay on the court. So that's a fear of giving him all this money and how long do you actually have them? So you wonder, are we now going to move on? I'm sure they would like to give it another shot, but you know, at some point, especially if you can get up very high in this draft and say, okay, but basically you're saying we are now hitting the reset button after a few years of making this guy the number one pick in the draft. If you had the chance, would you move him? I, it, it seems like, you know, we've had a, a few years of the same pattern. So I, I think I would try and move him, yes. I See, I feel like I'd probably still sit pat just because, like, I, I don't know what 
you'd get in turn for him at this point, right? What you'd really be able to draw at this point because his value is as low as it's been relative to the way he came into the league and the fanfare. He's only 23 years old. And like you said, he's missed 114 out of possible 308 games. But when he's been on the court, 25.8 points per game, seven rebounds per game, shooting 60% of the floor. The guy's been a mutant. And man, he's one of those talents that's so unique and such a lottery ticket still that if you can get it to hit and you can get clear of all this and maybe get a different version of the guy, I understand it's a bit of the bad boy complex that sometimes we see in dating, but man, if you can make it work, there's still so much there for such a young player. So we'll wait and see in advance of Thursday. I doubt anything gets done, but man, it's already been a wild time of headlines for the NBA, and this would certainly throw another log onto the fire. Um, Dad, let's get to that. This is really interesting as it concerns hard knocks. Now, we remember the Detroit Lions became America's team during last year's hard knocks. Everyone fell in love with Dan Campbell, the great coaching staff, and all the guys behind there. So much so that a lot of people like me came on this show and thought that they would make the playoffs early in the season. And we got close. We had fun along the way. And apparently now, there's at least been a conversation, according to sources, that the NFL reached out to hard Knock, to the Lions again about the possibility of featuring them on Hard Knocks. Now, they're not one of the teams the NFL can force onto Hard Knocks. Based on their criteria, you have to meet all three of the following criteria to be a team that can be forced in. No first, uh, no first-year head coach, no playoff appearances in the last two years, and no Hard Knocks appearances in the last 10 years. So there would be four teams eligible, the Chicago Bears, the New Orleans Saints, the Washington Commanders, and the New York Jets. And dad, I have to say, well, I would love to see Dan Campbell and the Lions back at the helm here. The Jets are the answer of the team. If you're going to force that would be the most interesting given what's gone on with them this offseason. The only problem with forcing a team if they don't want to do it and you force them is what kind of access you're going to get. What kind of is it actually going to be good? I, I'm starting to wonder, you know, the, uh, after hard knocks, you know, or before the Lions went on, they actually reached out to NFL films to be on the show. And they admitted the depiction on Hard Knocks was ultimately beneficial to their team. I don't know if it would be that way again, because now we're kind of establishing what we saw. My bigger view of this, Mike, are we are we kind of losing it with Hard Knocks? Has, has it kind of run its course? I mean, because it, it was it was must-watch TV. But I found myself over the last year or two. Now, last year with Dan Campbell, it was awesome. But I have found myself kind of watching it less and being less interested. And if you have these teams that you can force to be on it and don't want to be on it, I really wonder what kind of show you're going to get. Now they're forced to have to have these guys available, but how good is that going to be? Are you really going to get the personalities that you want in this? So I, I just have a feeling that this show has kind of run its course. Well, I think you're always at the mercy of the personalities and the criteria we just read. You're usually getting bad teams. Like, that's usually what you end up with. I think the Jets would be interesting just because it's New York, so everything's automatically going to draw more attention. But how rarely does a team that meets that criteria go and add a former two-time MVP in the last three years to the offense in a way that all of a sudden jumpstarts the party and one who's as wild a personality as we've seen Aaron Rodgers shown to be over the last number of years. So that's my only thing for them. I'm with you in general. It's been around so long and we've got so many old ones like the Jets and the Ravens from years ago that were so great. 
that it's hard for it to live up to the standard that we've set. Plus, we got so much access now to all sorts of things around sports, it's a little less special. So we'll wait and see what happens with that, but maybe the Lions have their hat back in the ring. Dad, let's get to the third here. This was a story you sent me from Italy. More than 30 riders disqualified from the under-23 Euro d'Italiana, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, after they were caught on camera hanging on to team cars and motorbikes on the famous climb of Paso dello Stelvio. Uh, the race jury excluded 24 riders Wednesday night after reviewing wi- videos, but disqualified a further seven on Thursday morning. Dad, the Stugats is so strong in these cyclists for going out here and working smarter, not harder. It's a reminder, cycling is a savagely difficult sport in some of those stretches. It's no wonder so many of them turned to blood doping and other impropriety. And in this case, these guys maybe just didn't want to go through all of that work. And so they just decided to hold on to the motor. I mean, it's unreal, though. It, it, this is like golf, though. And now they don't allow it anymore in golf. And I hated this when people watching on TV would see an infraction on a replay and call in and get a golfer in trouble who would later get penalized. I thought it was ridiculous. Well, this is a little different because these were fans that were actually there. They're fans, and guess what fans have in their hands? They have cameras, and you know what cameras can do? They can film. So these guys actually acted like these fans weren't filming them as they were laughing at, at, at each other as they were holding on to these motorized vehicles going up this hill, and the fans were literally taping them. That's how they got disqualified. The fans were showing the videos and that got to the the officials and they disqualified 31 uh, cyclists for this. This is amazing to me. Again, kudos. This is something you do out on the street. We used to do it when the street was covered with snow when I was a kid and the car was running slow and we'd run up behind it and grab the bumper and, and slide along. This isn't some sanctioned race where you're openly cheating in front of people and getting filmed cheating in front of people how dumb can you be i i i i am not often left speechless but the thought of these guys thinking oh man we're doing it we're getting over on them we're not looking at any of those people in the crowd so surely they're not looking at us we hope you looked at this podcast even if we dragged you along the way as always make sure you download subscribe rate review thanks so much we'll talk to you tomorrow Boom. Money in the bank.